We love controversy, don't we? This morning, or this week, rather, I was uh, talking with somebody about what I'm going to preach on and uh, told them that it was going to be on Acts chapter 2. And they said, oh, you're going to talk about tongues. Tongues, right? Controversy. Well, I am going to talk about tongues just a little bit because quite honestly, tongues is just a tiny little part of what's going on in Acts chapter 2. What's going on in Acts chapter 2 is the exalted Christ, the exalted Jesus from the right hand of the Father in heaven is pouring out His Holy Spirit on His people And tongues is just a little sign of that. And oftentimes, we get confused by wanting to focus on the sign or on the little thing that's pointing to something, and we miss the emphasis, which is, what is it pointing at? And it's pointing at Jesus Christ. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning talking about what Christ is doing in pouring out His Spirit in this most important moment in the salvation history of redemption. Luke is building on chapter 1 when he comes to chapter 2. Luke is building a bridge between the resurrection and ascension of our Lord to the day of Pentecost. The appearances of Christ to the apostles and the disciples over the 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, the mission Jesus had given to His apostles, to His disciples, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father, the selection of Matthias to replace the betrayer Judas Iscariot, to bring the apostles' numbers to 12 once again, all these events prepared the disciples for the coming of the Holy Spirit in power so that they might be powerful witnesses to the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to save His people from their sins. Add to this another bridge that Luke is building. This time in Acts 2, a bridge from the Old Testament nation of Israel to the New Testament church. Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is that bridge and the Holy Spirit is center stage for what is one of the most important moments, the most important days in the history of the world. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. The significance of this event is highlighted in verse 1 by the words translated arrived. It literally means one was fulfilled. It could be read when the day of Pentecost was fulfilled. It's an unusual Greek word used by the historian Luke in his first volume. In Luke chapter 9 verse 51 where it refers to the days drawing near for Jesus to set His face to Jerusalem. That is to die on the cross. In the fullness of time, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, came to earth to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament, to become fully man without ceasing to be fully God. And so now on the day of Pentecost, the day was fulfilled for the third person of the Trinity. 
the Holy Spirit to come to indwell God's people individually and to bring them together in order to establish Christ's church. Fulfilling what John the Baptist had said in the Gospel of Matthew right before he baptized Christ. John said, He who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is the day Jesus would fulfill the promise to baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Spirit's coming is accompanied by three very obvious and clear signs. First, there is the sound like a mighty rushing wind coming directly from heaven and filling the house. Second, what appeared like tongues of fire rested on each believer. And third, the, the ability of the disciples to speak in other languages or tongues. Let's look at each one of these and put them in their biblical context. First, the mighty rushing wind. In both Old and New Testament, the word for spirit can also mean wind or breath. And the life-giving power of the Spirit is portrayed in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. In chapter 37, starting in verse 9, where Ezekiel is told to prophesy, and the Spirit of God breathes life into the dead, dried bones of spiritually dead Israel. Ezekiel 39, or rather, Ezekiel 37, verse 9. Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Down to verse 14. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. I will place you in your own land, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. The wind here is analogous to the Spirit of God coming into them. The Spirit of God as breath or wind is seen again in John chapter 3 where Jesus tells a Pharisee, a religious Jew, Nicodemus, that one must be born again, born of the Spirit in order to gain eternal life. Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it goes, whether it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Here in Acts 2, verse 2, the sound of the Spirit of God filled the whole house where the apostles and disciples were. A mighty, a mighty rushing wind, the power of God. It filled the house, much as the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and the temple of God long ago in the Old Testament. In similar fashion, the divided tongues of fire appeared on each one. In miniature, a reminder of the great pillar of fire appearing before the people of Israel, representing the presence and dwelling place of God in the Old Testament. These tongues of fire 
representing the Holy Spirit's presence with each believer is referred to in 1 Peter 4, where the Apostle reminds us of the Spirit's presence with us in the midst of trial and persecution. 1 Peter 4, verse 14, You are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. The presence of God no longer will reside in one place, at a tent in the wilderness or in a temple in Jerusalem. But now at Pentecost, after Pentecost, the signs the Lord is revealing tell us that God's presence will never leave us, for the Spirit of God has indwelt us. The Spirit of God is consecrating a new sanctuary here in which God would dwell among His people. This new sanctuary is the church. It is the place of His presence. He no longer dwells in a temple, in a structure, in a building. His presence is now found in the body of Christ. In His people is where He dwells now. This is what Jesus talked, spoke of when He was talking to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. He told her that soon a day will come when the Jews will not worship in Jerusalem, the site of Israel's temple, but that God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The Apostle Paul spoke of this work of the living and active Jesus by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, where he explains that a new temple is being built that through Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are growing together into a dwelling place for God, into the church. Ephesians 2, verse 18, For through Him, that is through Jesus Christ, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Well, so far we've discussed the two obvious signs of the Holy Spirit's coming. Let's now discuss the third. From verse 4, they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's a play on words going on here in verses 3 and 4 that links the visible tongues of fire from verse 3 with the audible tongues or languages of the nations in verse 4. A major clue as to what these audible tongues are is seen as we read on starting in verse 5. Follow along with me. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, 
both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. These are people in Jerusalem, and they are from all over the Roman Empire. The list of where people have come from in verses 9 and 10 is really saying that they are here in Jerusalem from east and west, from north and south, from all over, from far away, from everywhere you can think of, and they are hearing these other tongues in their own language, as we are told at the end of verse 6. They are each hearing them in their own native language, we are told at the end of verse 8. And in an almost exactly parallel statement at the end of verse 11, these are described as hearing them in our own tongues. And what are they hearing? They are hearing the mighty works of God. Now, I would suggest to you that the gift that God has given here meets the need of the moment, meets the need of the diverse multitude. There were people here from many nations, and God in marvelous grace gave the gift of tongues at this specific time, in this place, so that those who never studied the languages were able to speak them fluently so that people from scores of different places would understand what was happening on the day of Pentecost. This is one of the many evidence that when the Bible speaks about speaking in tongues, it is not referring to ecstatic speech as practiced in Pentecostal and charismatic churches over the last century. Rather, speaking in tongues refers to speaking in a known language by those who have never studied that language. That is a miracle. It is miraculous, but is that, but that is what constitutes this miracle. Not that people are able to speak in some kind of ecstatic speech, so that when we read in the New Testament of speaking in tongues, we are reading of speaking in known languages by those who have never studied them, so that they are able to speak fluently. This was a magnificent, mighty miracle which God the Spirit performed. God said He would do this in the Old Testament. And it is confirmed in the new. God told Israel he would do this in Isaiah 28. He said he would speak to them by men of other tongues. In verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul quotes from Isaiah. Here's what he says. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Then Paul goes on in verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. God had warned Israel he would speak to them in this way. He told them so and said they would, by and large, be disobedient and reject the message. That, of course, is exactly what happened. Look at verses 12 and 13. Verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others said, They are filled with new wine. The gospel almost always produces two responses. Joyful faith or angry rejection. Even though the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is unimaginably good. And the message is being proclaimed clearly in many different languages so all can understand. Still, the aroma of Christ is a fragrance of life to some and the smell of death to others. Some are amazed and are seeking to understand, while others say they are simply drunk. Christ crucified and risen. The fact Christ died for our sins 
attracts some, but is a stumbling block to others. Now we come to Peter's sermon starting in verse 14. In this sermon we are about to read, Peter interprets the meaning of the Spirit's coming, telling the crowd gathered that the strange events that amazed and confused them was the work of Jesus himself. In Peter's sermon, he cites three Old Testament texts. Joel 2 in verses 17 to 21. Psalm 16 that we read this morning in verses 25 to 28. And Psalm 110 in verses 34 to 35. Which Peter will explain that through the teaching of Jesus and the illumination of the Spirit are fulfilled in our Lord's suffering and subsequent glories. Let's read through the first Old Testament text from Joel 2, starting in verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, they are probably at or near the Temple Mount. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose. So it is only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m. in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Peter says, these are now the last days. These are the last days. We are living in the last days. The last days began at the resurrection and ascension of Christ and continue on until He comes back again for His people. We have been in the last days for almost 2,000 years now. And in these last days... Peter is saying we are seeing a fulfillment. At least the first stage in the fulfillment of the prophet Joel's words written 700 years before Peter spoke them in Acts 2. Now, good and godly men have interpreted this passage in many different ways. Some say the prophecy in Joel has been completely fulfilled. Others say none of it has. I believe a middle ground is required from the text. I think it has been partially fulfilled. With much of verses 17 and 18 already being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, verses 19 and 20 yet to be fulfilled right before or during the time of Jesus at His second coming. And verse 21 being the gracious reality of salvation in Christ that now is and will be in the future. While almost all agree, what, I'm sorry, what almost all agree on is that the new reality after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ and Christ pouring out the Spirit of God is to those who will proclaim God's truth from all mankind, from all nations. Notice specifics in verses 17 and 18. They will be sons and daughters. They will be young and old. They will be servants. 
All people, no matter what your station in life, men and women, boys, girls, slaves or masters, rich or poor, would go, we could go on and list all the different parsings of humanity that exist. But what's being told here by God through Joel and now being proclaimed by Peter is that all people will be a part of this new covenant in Jesus Christ. Now, part of the new reality of the new covenant is there will be judgment for sin. Verses 19 and 20 are filled with the language of God's judgment. Blood, fire, smoke, the day of the Lord. These are all terms from the Old Testament regarding God's judgment. There will be conviction of sin and judgment as a result of the Holy Spirit being poured out. The last part of the New Covenant highlighted is verse 21. It is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. The Savior that all of those disciples are witnessing to is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who saves from the coming judgment of verses 19 and 20. Peter's sermon continues in verse 22. But he seems to shift directions. Peter goes on to tell them that the one they had rejected and crucified, Jesus Christ, has now been raised from the dead and exalted by God to heaven. And it is this Jesus that is responsible for the outpouring of the Spirit of God they are seeing today. Verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and we'll pick that up in just a minute. Peter began by pointing them to the signs and wonders, the miracles that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. They were God's seal of authenticity, confirming Jesus as the second person of the Trinity and the Messiah, the Savior. But God's own people used the Romans and the crucifixion to be rid of him. Yet God's plan was not thwarted by them. Notice, God's definite plan could not be stopped. Yet the murderers were not exonerated. Peter now calls on two more Old Testament passages to make his case. First from Psalm 16, and then Psalm 110. Both written by David, the most revered king of Israel. The first is the psalm we read for scripture reading. Peter says when King David wrote these psalms, he was writing about Christ. Verse 25. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Now Peter will provide them with the divine interpretation of Psalm 16, which makes Jesus, not David, the one who has risen from the grave. 
Peter concludes with a call of repentance and trust in Christ, starting in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that is Christ, has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the quote from Psalm 110. Verse 36, Peter continues, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter with the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive salvation. Verse 39, For the promises for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself, and with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. What or who is responsible for all of this? For 3,000 souls coming to Christ on this single day at the preaching of a lowly fisherman from Galilee. Well, let's go back and look again at verses 32 and 33. There's where the answer is. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, He, that is Christ, has poured out this, that is the Holy Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. It is the exalted Christ seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, who has poured out the Holy Spirit on this day of Pentecost. The exalted, living, and active Christ called 3,000 this day to believe in Him by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the miracle of Pentecost. This is the beginning, rather the unveiling of the body of Christ, of His church. And notice how those who were saved were called. They were those who received His word in verse 41 which is synonymous with those who are called to repent in verse 38. Repent means literally to turn. It means to change your mind. In the Bible, it means to change your mind about your own sin and to turn away from it and to change your mind about God and to turn to Him for salvation. Multiple times in the Gospel of John, 
Jesus says that by believing in Him, we can be saved. We can have eternal life. The main point in the book of Romans and Galatians is that salvation is by grace as a free gift of God to be received through faith alone in Christ alone. We cannot do a work. We cannot do any work. We cannot do a work like water baptism to be saved. Water baptism does not save. It does not forgive sins. Yet in this chapter and the entire book of Acts and in the New Testament as a whole, water baptism, while it doesn't save, is tied very, very closely to salvation. And when people are saved, almost immediately in the book of Acts, when someone comes to faith, they are baptized. Water baptism is a public testimony of your faith in Christ. It is a believer in Christ telling everyone in the world, I am a Christian. I am a Christ follower. And nothing is more important in my life than that. Think of the impact the testimony of 3,000 Jews would have in Jerusalem on this day. How Think of how those who have come to faith in Christ and have been baptized would have been ostracized from their community. They would be expelled from their families. They would lose their job. They would be cast out of polite society because they have turned to Christ. Well, just as Christ, through the power of the Spirit, used Peter to proclaim the Gospel and save 3,000 souls, so Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, takes care of His children. He will be with them always. How does He do that here? Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. The Lord added to their number. He was calling them to Himself through the power of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus had poured out upon these people. The Lord Jesus, through the power of the Spirit, is leading them to be about four main things that are emphasized here. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. As we see from Peter's sermon, their teaching focused on Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises to redeem and save from sin. Their teaching was validated by the many signs and wonders. Second, they devoted themselves to fellowship, which in this case involved primarily pooling their material resources and having everything in common. In gratitude to God and trusting in Him, along with their compassion for their spiritual brothers and sisters, the believers gave of their treasure and their goods to meet the needs of others. We'll talk more about this when we come to chapter 4. Third, they are praying together. And fourth is the breaking of the bread. This is the Lord's Supper, 
which was instituted by the Lord Jesus as he broke bread and drank wine with the apostles the night before his death on the cross to commemorate the sacrifice of Christ until he comes again. In Acts 2, we see the bridges that are being built by the gospel. At Pentecost, God's grace in Jesus begins to reunite divided people so that God might be glorified and not man. Jews from many far-flung peoples and nations hear and believe the gospel so that Jesus Christ might be glorified and not man. God spoke His good news directly to the nations in the languages of their own hearts. The instantaneous, miraculous gift of Pentecost in Jerusalem foreshadows the moving of the gospel to the regions of Judea to the south, to Samaria to the north, to Rome and eventually all the nations of the earth in the centuries to come through the power of the Holy Spirit who still spreads Jesus' name and fame through the earth today through people like you and like me, through Omaha Bible Church, through the church universally. For it is the power of God for salvation to all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins so we might be declared righteous before God and have eternal life through Him. Yes, it is a great miracle that this morning, in multitudes of languages around the globe, that the gospel is being preached and that men, women, and children are believing in Jesus Christ alone as Savior and Lord. This is happening through Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the gospel is being proclaimed to nations around the world. These things are all in fulfillment of all that God in the Old Testament had promised, according to His predetermined plan, which our sovereign God set forth before the very foundation of the world. What a great God and a marvelous Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. We thank You, Father, that this universal indwelling which had never occurred before the day of Pentecost, has come to pass. And down through the centuries since then, the members of the church of Jesus Christ have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Blessed Trinity. What a magnificent gift you have given to us who live in this age. We are grateful, Lord, and we pray that it may be true that in our experience we know the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, your blessing upon each one here. We pray for any who may be here who may not yet have come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we pray that through the work of the Holy Spirit and conviction and conversion, there may come faith in Him which leads to eternal life. We are grateful for the promises of the Word of God. We know, Lord, that your word does not return to you empty, that it accomplishes all your purposes. We call upon you, Lord, today to bring forth fruit as the word of God is preached. We thank you for the whole church of Jesus Christ among the nations of the world. Wherever its members may be now, Lord, we pray your blessing upon each one of them. 
Wherever the gospel is proclaimed accurately and in harmony with the word of God, Lord, bless that word. Bring forth fruit. We know there are many people who proclaim the word of God in earnestness and sincerity, who may not agree with us on every point of the Bible's teaching, but who nevertheless represent the Lord Jesus Christ and honor Him, His person and work. Bless their ministry of the gospel. Bless the whole ministry of the whole body of Christ. And Father, if it be Your will, bless us here today. May we have a sense of Your blessing upon us. We pray for the sick this morning, for those who are perplexed, for those who are in need of divine guidance, in need of sustaining grace in the trials of life. We pray for Your rich blessing on them and we ask that You would supply these needs. We pray for the outreach of the Gospel through our church, through Omaha Bible Church. Lord, we thank You specifically for our ministry in India. We thank You for the privilege that Pastor Chris Peterson and Deacon Patrick Innes had to proclaim the Word of God to pastors, elders, and to Your people in India this past week. We pray that that ministry may continue, that You would use it richly to glorify our Savior. And we pray specifically for Vineet and Saya and their children and Your people at Living Hope Bible Church in Pune, India. We are thankful for their faithfulness and for the zeal with which they seek to please You. We commit the ministries of this church to You, that the Lord Jesus may be exalted. We worship You through Him. We praise You for the Holy Spirit. We give You thanks and praise today through Jesus for all these things. In His name we pray. Amen.